Welcome to Risking Enchantment, a podcast about art, beauty, and the Catholic faith. Hosted by Rachel Sherlock. Hello and welcome to Risking Enchantment. For this week's episode, you've got myself, Rachel Sherlock, and joining me this time is my friend, Reba Lukin. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Rachel. It's lovely to have you on. You're a friend of mine for a, from a long time ago. We met when you were doing a year study at University College Cork um, and sadly haven't had the chance to meet in person since then. But it's great to be able to connect to you on the miracle of the Internet. Yeah, it's so much fun to be able to like hear the whole podcast and, can, you know, send you Facebook messages or whatever. And Oh, thank you. So do you want to tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your areas of interest and maybe what we're going to be discussing today? Sure. Uh, So I am currently the director of Allen Centennial Garden, which is at the University of Wisconsin. So I live in uh, Madison, Wisconsin. Um, And my background is in plant biology, which is where the gardening comes from. And then also I did a major in religious studies and a PhD in history of science, technology, and medicine. So I have lots of different things. Um, very interested in religion, and um, have been Catholic my whole life. And so it's it's funny. I was talking to a religious studies professor, and she was introducing her cat, and she said, "Oh, Junia, blah blah blah." And I was like, "Junia, uh huh. I recognize that name because that's like the apocryphal name of the female pope, right?" I think. Oh, yeah. 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 So, um, and I was like, she's like, oh, you're a good religious studies student. I was like, it had nothing to do with religious studies. That's like my own like hobby and religion. So, um, very interested in like Laudato Si and care for creation. And so that's why we're going to be talking about um, faith and gardening today. Yeah, I think it's so exciting. I'm, I, I was just thinking when you were listing out there, it's great that we can cover your interest in gardening and your interest in religion. I'm not sure we're going to get to the history of science um, and your other areas of expertise, but I do think it's wonderful to be talking about religion and gardening. I know my my mum, who is my most faithful listener, is going to be listening to this podcast, and uh, my parents have a large and fairly um, intense garden it's not just big but it's like on a slope and the soil is really bad and there's all of these elements to it and so it's funny because she gardens a lot but whereas a a couple of people I know who garden a lot are very like very lifestyle based and it's like this big relaxing activity and my mom's out there with like a crowbar trying to (laughs) trying to break break stones out of the ground and things like that but I think, and I think the other part which she, she'll find funny, which is that despite having this big garden growing up, I definitely was not a helpful child when it came to the garden. <laughs> I didn't have a lot of interest and I didn't have a lot of like the necessary um, dedication and strength and, and all of those things. But in recent years, I have come into gardening um, and I, I have started helping my parents with their garden. I have a balcony in this flat, which is uh, amazing because it's like the easiest place in the world to grow anything because it sits under somebody else's flat. So all of the heat comes up. So it's like a nice little <laughs> microcosm for us. My, my Phoebe, my my other co-host and flatmate, she's a bit more of a green thumb than me. And we grew tomato plants last year that honestly took over the whole flat. <laughs> so we were like, we're going to grow maybe one or two this year, not 
10. Um, it was too many. Um, but yeah, so definitely finding gardening, something that intrigues me more and more as I get older and really loving it. I think I mentioned on the podcast before as well that I'm obsessed with watching. There's a BBC program called Gardener's World, which is like, <laughs> I think I think it's kind of like older people programming, but we love it. I was, I was talking to my mom. She liked to watch the Great British Bake Off. And mm-hmm. like, the thing I really love is how they have all these cool clips of bees and flowers in between when they like cut between the scenes. <laughs> oh, it's lovely. And I think that that's, that's it. There's a kind of fascination that comes with the natural world when you start to garden, whether you're in the wilderness or whether you're in, you know, like a, a small little patio garden, whatever it is, it's kind of, it's not that everyone who is interested in nature gardens, but I think if you're really a gardener, you can't not be interested in nature. And and I think that's where we can kind of start with the faith, because I think it's it's, gardening is one of those things that really grounds you in creation and reminds you of the gift that is creation and that that we we exist in a physical space of creation whether that's in our own bodies or in in the world that we're interacting with right i think there is something about this modern world right like we're on zoom all the time and we're on the internet and it's like i could be doing that anywhere but when mm-hmm. you go outside like there's something really special about being in a specific place mm-hmm. and it's not the same like where you are right like the weather is probably, it's warmer there than it is here today. And like the whole, I just remember being in Ireland and the thing that struck me was like the colors of the landscape are different. Mm. Like all of a sudden the primary colors of the landscape were like gray and green. Yeah. Here it's much, I feel more brown and blue. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. It is funny how, and like, you know, we get called the Emerald Isle. There is something about Ireland that is particularly verdant and green but like you say, yeah, that there are these specifics wherever you go and there's something to see and appreciate in each kind of landscape. Like there are people who go through enormous lengths to grow kind of tropical jungle wildernesses in their back gardens or their sort of desert plants. And those can be beautiful. But there is also something about entering into what naturally grows in the landscape or what is fitting to this exact place or or um, looking into why certain plants grow in certain areas. And yeah, I think embodiment is a word that came up and you recommended two books by a an author, it's Vegan Garoin, is that it? Yeah. Um, and he's an Armenian Orthodox writer who writes beautifully. He's written, as far as I can see, he's written quite a lot of books, but he's written at least two specifically on um, planting and gardening and, and nature that um, were really great. I loved reading them. One was called Inheriting Paradise and the other was called The Fragrance of God. I remember coming, so I took an Eastern Orthodoxy class in um, undergrad and the professor basically, we had to do an independent project. And so I was spending all of this time learning about Eastern Orthodoxy and the environment. And I feel like that was the first time I really spent a lot of time like thinking about Christianity and the environment because there's mm-hmm. like, there's like this overarching narrative of like, whether the creation story and like the way that God told Adam, you know, you're supposed to take care of the animals. Like, what does that really mean? And is that, is that in conflict with like a creative environmental ethic or 
does it support it? And that was, of course, long before Laudato Si and any of those things came along. But um, the whole basically thesis that um, Ian Groin and my professor were talking about was, well, in Eastern Orthodoxy, we don't have that dichotomy. That's a Western Christianity problem. You know, we just um, are much more spiritual and involved and like to see nature as praising God and us praising God through nature and God isn't nature, but God is in nature. And so like thinking about those things on a more spiritual level, as opposed to like a real, like logical academic level. I don't know. I sometimes think like one of the main differences between Catholicism and Eastern Orthodoxy is that the Catholics like their theology is so much like Thomas Aquinas, like proofs and like we have to prove everything logically. And it feels a little more freeing to be in like this orthodox space where it's more, it feels more experiential. And of course this is coming from a non-expert, but yeah. it's more about like, how do you walk through the world and experience it? And um, yeah. And of course, None of that is actually in contradiction with Catholicism, but like you said, there can be a, a slight overemphasis on a particular mode of approaching like God and, and analyzing God in, in terms of theology. I know I've you will remember our UCC chaplain, Brother Richard, and he was very he's a Capuchin friar, and he was he speaks a lot about Celtic and Christian conceptions as well which again feel more in tune with nature or we have our own Byzantine rites or Eastern Eastern Church Catholic rites that could help inform us in this way and like you said there's a wealth of wisdom that we can learn from our, our Orthodox brothers and sisters that that is about a less analytical and yet still deeply richly intellectual way of approaching Christ and I think the interesting thing that you said there was that it, it's a spiritual approach and yet at the same time what Vigan is kind of getting at is that spiritual does not mean to the detriment of physic physicality um, and that he writes really strongly about his kind of abhorrence of the idea that he feels has so captivated a lot of people which is that your bodies are something that will be left behind. Your bodies are irredeemable. They're not part of your kind of spiritual um, journey, that they're just like a burden that will be will be released from when we get to heaven and we don't have to deal with that anymore. And so he really speaks about the physical connectivity of, of actions like gardening and other things and walking and, and using our body to encounter Christ. And he has a quote from, this is in Inheriting Paradise, but he says, the internet may even trick us into thinking that having a body and a place is not important. Gardening teaches us differently. I do not mean industrial mechanized farming. I mean the kind of gardening that any one of us can do with his hands and his feet and the simplest tools. And at another stage, he says, the mystical enjoyment comes not without the toilsome struggle of raking and sowing and pulling up the weeds. In my garden, the thistle grows more easily than the primrose. Sin grows in my body more readily than purity. And the keys to my garden do not admit me back through Eden's gate. And so there's this real sense of like actually seeing how the physical exertion of our bodies in order to cultivate beauty 
through creation, beauty and also utility in terms of uh, growing vegetables and other more practical plants, but both utility and beauty through physical exertion, but through God's grace of of, of the gift of creation and, and growing and living things. Right. And I think that there's something I'm like notorious for like, let me lay out the garden plan and I'll tell you where the plants are going to go. We'll get it all set up. And then like not being that interested in like actually pulling, well, I like pulling weeds, but just like going out there and maintaining the garden all of the time. Yeah. So it's like, let me, I think he really brings up the important point of like, you actually have to do it right. It's an embodied practice. So as much as like, you know, it's great. Like we have all of these, you should meditate and you should do you know, all of these like daily practices and do your journaling and all of those things, like actually doing them is the important part. And I think that's true in the garden too, right? Like you actually have to go out and pull the weeds. You actually have to go and water and harvest your vegetables. Yeah. And that like how quickly it all goes. This is what me and my mom always talk about, which is that like, you know, I cleared one of our pathways in the garden of like all of the weeds and it was all weeds and I pull them all up. And then I come back, you know, two months later <laughs> and like on some level, it's like I might I might as well have not even done it, you know, um, that like as soon as you stop working at it, it immediately goes back to the way it was and, and the, the weeds and the brambles and the thistles. And in our garden, which I... It's amazing. It just trees everywhere. We're near a forest and like we would just be taken over with oak trees if we didn't if we didn't pull them up. They're everywhere. And they're so hard to pull up after a certain time. Um so you have to keep you you do have to keep fighting for it. It's something that like it isn't a single action that you complete and then you're done. It's an ongoing thing. And I think you're so right about saying that it's it's actually living and it's actually practicing and it's actually encountering and it's not theoretical. I'm reading Walden. It's so funny. I was I was just saying to you before we started recording, I, I recorded an episode on kind of nature and the seasons two years ago called Springing into the Season. And um, I said in that one that I wanted to read Walden and I'm like, oh, here I am two years later. <laughs> And then finally reading it, I'm getting there. But also it was funny. I heard myself say, oh, there's the the cladding on our flat is creaking because there's a lot of wind today. And I'm recording this episode exactly two years later in the middle of a storm with my creaking cladding. So if anyone can hear creaks, that's just the roof. But um, it's funny how some things change and some things don't. But uh, I am reading Walden by Henry David Thoreau. And I'm kind of surprised with, because I'd read some of the more nature-centered chapters before, but I'm reading it cover to cover this time. And he takes a long time to get to talking about nature. And the first couple of like sections are all about economy and like the practicalities of building. And he has a lot of sort of his ideas of the world, but it's still really relevant to our topic today because he has this section about why it's important to go out and do these things yourself. And that it, it, there's one section where he says about like, we have professors of philosophy, but we don't have any philosophers anymore, which I think is a really interesting statement, especially like considering how long ago that was for, for us, you know, another 200 years ago. But he says, he, he's talking about students and he's conjecturing that someone says, he says, but says one, you do not mean that the students should go to work with their hands instead of their heads. I do not mean that exactly, but I mean something which he might think a good deal like that. 
I mean that they should not play life or study it merely, while the community supports them at this expensive game, but earnestly live it from beginning to end. How could youths better learn to live than by at once trying the experiment of living? Methinks this would exercise their minds as much as mathematics. If I wished a boy to know something about the arts and sciences, for instance, I would not pursue the common course, which is merely to toss him into the neighbourhood of some professor, where anything is professed and practised but the art of life. To survey the world through a telescope or a microscope and never see it with his natural eye, to study chemistry and not learn how his bread is made, or mechanics and not learn how it is earned. So that kind of sense of there's a real temptation to spend our lives commenting or thinking about or discussing without ever having actually engaging in doing. And I think about that a lot with like, I love talking about literature and I love talking about films. And I'm not saying that it's my vocation in life to be a filmmaker or, I don't know, to be an author or whatever it is. It might be, <laughs> maybe, maybe someday I'll turn around and do it. Uh, I'm not saying that you have to be doing those, actually making them to be able to comment on them. But I do think there is a trap that we fall into where we spend all of our time talking about things and not actually making them or not actually creating. And all you're, all you're doing is creating commentary. Yeah, I think it's funny that Thoreau says this in a way because I, mm -hmm. when I read Walden, I too was disappointed by how little nature there was because I was aware. <laughs> but also, when he goes into nature, to an extent, he's sort of just playing nature, like he's not yeah. really surviving there. So take I don't know, take his opinion with a grain of salt, perhaps. But I do think, as you were reading that, it's funny. I was having a conversation with my husband the other day about how wouldn't it be more useful in in high school, if we learned about the chemistry of baking bread, as opposed to just like abstract chemistry, mm -hmm. <laughs> right? Like that you do chemistry in, in your daily life. But one thing that I've been trying to do, and I am not disciplined at it, but I started uh, teaching and learning about nature journaling. Mm. And the amazing thing about it in trying to like learn how to sketch something is how many trees I have looked at in my life and not really looked at. Like I've in my head, there's an idea of a tree, but mm -hmm. at, like in trying to actually physically draw the tree and like, I have to look at it so much more closely than I ever have before. And it's amazing. Like I'm not a skilled artist. I haven't been trained as an artist, but I can draw a tree if I actually really look at it closely and like follow my eye along the line of the branch as I draw with a pencil Mm -hmm. um, and so I know so much more about trees now, having drawn 10 of them over the past two years than I did before, because I just haven't ever looked that closely at them. I know. I think that's amazing. I too, I've taken up some painting recently and I, I, yeah, it just makes you, it's so amazing how little you can take in of what's around you that like, like you said, it's almost like you have a picture of a tree that you're given when you were a kid and then whenever you look at trees, you just sort of stick that on top of it. Like if you're told to recall it from memory, you're not actually thinking about the tree that you saw. You're just thinking about the tree that's in your mind from the picture book when you were a kid. Like that's what a tree looks like, you know? Um, but like to actually take the time to sit and look, really look and engage with and question. I, I totally agree that like that's such a foundational way of approaching 
learning things and and it's really beautiful and there is that sense of like you know god created this world which with such loving care and attention that when we turn our hands to things like that it's only then that we give it the kind of attention that god has has demonstrated that um we're actually focusing in on it and i think that was something that you and i were going to talk about which is just the, this image of both god and then specifically christ as a gardener that like when we do gardening it gives glory to God because in the, in the same way that Tolkien always says, and we'll come on to Tolkien and, and trees and gardening, but with the, you know, we are made in the image and likeness of a maker that like when we make things, we are like God because that's what God does. And so when we garden and when we cultivate and when we raise up creation through our efforts, again, we are emulating God and falling in line with the way that he operates in the way that we've seen him through creation. Right. And I think that there's, there's this place where Christ is, I don't know. I mean, there's all of this theology around Adam as the first gardener and then Christ as the second gardener or this very mm -hmm. specific example, right. Of Mary Magdalene going to find Jesus in the tomb and then seeing the gardener, but it really, you know, like. Yeah. It's, it's really, it's really Christ. Right. Exactly. And, um, it's amazing how many things in scripture are related to the land. Mm. <laughs> and, we, yeah. you know, in the modern world, because I am so disconnected and many of us are so disconnected from it, we don't notice it. I went into a shop once and there was a Bible you could get that had all of the like environmental things highlighted words in green. Like all of those passages were a different color than the rest of the text. And I didn't pick it up. I decided to go with the other you know, more normal one. But since then, the more that I spend learning about plants, the more that I see it come up. It's, it's, a, it's amazing just being attuned to it. Like we talk about the earth every week in the, <laughs> and in mass. And, um, you know, it's part of the mass embedded in it, but it's also part of the readings. And, you know, in our modern world, I was in mass one day and the, um, we were reading the passage about the wheat and the chaff. And mm -hmm. so the priest in his homily was going into what is chaff and what is wheat. And I was just sitting there laughing, going, I literally have a wheat crowd hanging above my desk in my office. Like I've been looking at this all week. I know exactly what he's talking about, um, but not everyone does. And so he has to go into like all of this detail about things that we're disconnected from because we're no longer really an agricultural culture. We live in yeah. cities and a small, small subset of people farm or garden. Yeah. And that even, you know, it, it doesn't necessarily track that everyone who lives in a city doesn't know about nature, but it is amazing how disconnected we are. And I think, you know, I'm always talking to my friends about, about it in terms of like how we shop for our food and how we interact with the food that we eat and what, what does it mean to buy ethically, especially when it comes to food. Because I think, like you said, Christ has put it in our hearts to take the things that we eat seriously because that it, we also consume him. <laughs> and so f food is a serious thing and bread is a serious thing. And, and the things that we consume are serious and they're serious because they come from creation and we shouldn't take it lightly. My mom always has this story of me when I moved, I was, I was born in a city and lived there in Dublin until I was five. And then I moved to a countryside school and 
one of our first classes was like a list of spelling and vocabulary. And one of the words was sow, as in female pig. And I was the only one in the class who knew what a sow was when I was, I guess I would have been six then. But these were all people who were living in the countryside. Like they wouldn't necessarily all be farmers, but it was definitely like a small town school. And my teacher was just like, how, like you should be ashamed of yourself, this girl coming from the city and she's the only one who knows what a sow is. Um, <laughs> but it, I think it just doesn't cross people's minds sometimes to be interested interested in in that agricultural and in that gardening side of things that it's just taken for granted that they're just kind of background noise in a life that's otherwise focused on on other things um and it's a beautiful and you know theologically rich thing to take the time to actually sit with the images of like you said in in the mass and in in the bible and in our rich catholic tradition of like of gardening and of cultivation and and like you said that we, the I love the imagery and like the 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 imagery of Adam and Christ is the new Adam and that includes Adam the gardener and Christ the gardener I have an article here it's from Angelus Press it's called Christ the gardener of our souls um and it says Adam who was given dominion over all the earth squandered his glory by sin from that point forward he would only bring forth fruit from the earth by the sweat of his brow it would be hard work contrary to the initial order established by God where Adam was the master of the garden of paradise he was, in a sense, the gardener, but through his bad stewardship and his disobedience, he betrayed his authority and his God. Contrasting this with Christ, who is mistaken for the gardener, he has just done the work of bringing forth fruit and watering his garden through his passion and death and complete obedience to the Father. Now that he has triumphed over the world, the flesh, the devil, we find Christ exactly where and how we should expect to find him as the new Adam in a garden, tilling the garden of our souls, which is just beautiful. Right. Well, and I'm thinking as you're reading that too, about like Ash Wednesday and how we have, you know, they put ashes on our forehead and they say, you are from dust and to dust you shall return. Mm. Um, and how, you know, connected we are to Adam and Christ and the earth, <laughs> right? Like, yeah. um, this isn't a Christian quote, but, you know, I think it's Neil deGrasse Tyson will say, you know, you're stardust. No. All of the elements in your body came from stars that they like we are all interconnected with all of oh. these magical, beautiful things. And, you know, in, in the Christian sphere, right, like this holy, beautiful creation that has been created and can run in this amazing way. Um, you know, we're all connected yeah, and that in following Christ in this image of a gardener, that we become closer to him and that like we, we're modeling his actions. Like he, like that quote said, like he's exactly where you expect to find him. I have another quote from Norman Wurzba, which I think I referenced him before in our feasting podcast. He writes a lot about the kind of connectedness between gardening and feasting and all of these things. But he says that, this means that besides vegetables, flowers, and fruit, gardeners are themselves undergoing a spiritual cultivation into something beautiful and sympathetic and healthy. A caring, faithful, and worshipping humanity is one of the garden's most important crops. And I love that because it really drives home this, uh, I think, very Christian paradox of, you know, 
it like I think there was something about mixing metaphors that that we're, we're very good at in the sense that we are both the gardener and the crop. Like Christ is the the one who sacrifices and the one who is sacrificed. He is, you know, he is the the one who breaks the bread and is the bread. That like this combination of both things that um we are both both those things at once and it's funny because actually and like i said we're coming back to tolkien of course i have to talk about tolkien but he actually says this specifically he has this section in one of his letters where he's talking about man as a seed and like the things that grow out of man and but he goes on to say a man is not only a seed developing in a defined pattern well or ill according to its situation or its defects as an example of its species a man is both a seed and in some degree also a gardener for good or ill. So that sense of this, we are all this seed of potential, but we are also the result of our cultivation of that potential. Um, and that when we really embrace gardening as a model for for christ's action in the world that that's when we do it for good and i you know there's that great quote of faramir saying are all your kin of like sort your land must be a realm of peace and content and there must be gardeners held in high honor and frodo replies not all is well there but certainly gardeners are honored and i think that's such a like a a point of pride that the the hobbits are actually the type of people who raise up gardeners and like respect the thing that that gardening brings. Yeah, I remember when I was in Ireland, I hadn't read Lord of the Rings, and I was talking to Phoebe, or was I think it was Phoebe who said, "Oh yeah, well, you know, there's a lot of things about trees in there." <laughs> <laughs> and I was like, "Well, that's good. I like trees. I, I'd be happy to read about the nature." <laughs> Um, I think one of my most successful tweets was there was another line from Tolkien where he's complaining about the like plays as in in theater. Um, and he says, uh, not much about trees as trees can be gotten into a play. <laughs> <laughs> like That's the most Tolkien thing to complain about. The whole, the whole genre of theater is uh, not as good as it could be because you can't just go on and on and on about trees. Yeah. Well, so I was, I told you earlier, I was reading this book, Beasts at Bedtime, um, by an Irish, well, he lives in America, but he's Irish by birth, Liam Hennigan, I think. I don't know yeah. if you pronounce the Irish names better than I can, I'm sure. Um, but his book is all about uh, teaching children about nature by reading them, class mm -hmm. children's literature, and how basically these nature themes come up in all of them. And so he was talking about Tolkien. He said, Tolkien enjoyed a lifelong relationship with trees and undoubtedly qualifies as an early environmentalist. His mother, Mabel, was a fine botany tour. And according to Tolkien's biographer, under her instruction, he became quite an accomplished botanical artist, though apparently he was more concerned about capturing the feeling of plants rather than their anatomical details. <laughs> it sounds very much like, like Tolkien, that that feeling of plants, like really recognizing them. And he genuinely could, he, that people, I, I, I've read quotes which are saying that like people would try to avoid going on walks for him because he'd like stop at a tree for 20 minutes just to look at it. <laughs> uh, but that's a wonderful thing. Like I think that really informs how he understood the world and, and, and creation. And that's what makes the Lord of the Rings so compelling is because there's a real love 
of the world and of the earth in it. Um, and, you know, there's a, a great gardener hero. There should be more gardener heroes like Samwise. <laughs> yeah, I was looking through uh, a catalog of books the other day. They're all garden related. And there's a whole section about like nature in the Winnie the Pooh and the nature of Anne of Green Gables and um, like the secret garden and like mm-hmm. just like a whole little cottage industry of nature and different classic books. And I think... I mean- they've got me as an audience i'd I'd buy those (laughs) yeah exactly um but it's just i think speaks to something about what makes maybe classic literature classic Mm -hmm. one of the things i did when i was home on maternity leave when my son was born was he like he was like the slowest eater so we spent a lot of time together just like feeding him and um I would look. I was looking up different kinds of homeschooling theories, and there's one called Charlotte Mason, and it's all about reading classical literature. And there's this nature philosophy of, you know, when you're young, you have to go and do nature study or whatever. And I don't know. I think there's something right. Like we can pull out the morals of these books and relate them to um, Catholicism and Christianity. And also, part of the reason they're so rich is because they're embedded in someone's real experience of the world like the author actually knew about what it was like to live in a place they weren't just in the internet age or yeah it's funny I'm just thinking we when we were recording this I had just released our first episode back which was about um time and scheduling and and technology and how that changes things and I referenced um, it sounds like I've only listened to one episode of the Born of Wonder podcast. I have listened to more. <laughs> I just keep referencing this one. I really, I was really taken with it where she talks about wonder in a digital age. But one of the things she talks about was an article she was reading about how, um, like, I think it was some dictionary of children's vocabulary had taken out mm-hmm. a whole load of nature words like otter and brook and, you know, snowdrop things like that and replace them with words like email and vlogger and like it's not that you know their argument was saying that those are the things that children actually encounter and like maybe it's true that they might need to look up what those words mean but it almost is like to me it's like setting you up to fail like (laughs) it's like, well, they should be learning about otters and they should be learning about snowdrops. And just because they happen to be learning about emails because that's the world we live in doesn't mean that you need to capitulate and say that that's what they should be looking up. That like, I think the classic books that you reference there, many of them, not exclusively, but many of them are children's literature. And I think there is something about um, the expectation of childhood innocence that brings things back to basics that actually reminds you of how important nature is that like there's a reason that we want to teach kids the names of animals more than we want to teach them the names of I don't know types of buildings you know that like there is something deeply within us about a a connection to nature and that that feels right to bestow onto kids like I think there's a line at the start of Walden actually which where he's talking about how we should take it back to basics. Like every kid looks at a spot of land and says, we should just put a house here and just live here and play house. And like you said, there's almost that element of him playing nature, but there is something like radically fundamental about saying 
stripping back all of the layers of civilization of practicalities that we put onto things and saying, well, if you're not encountering nature in any way, you're missing out on this most basic thing that you learned as a kid and knew as a kid instinctually on some level that like it was important to learn about sheep and plants and the sun and the moon, you know? Right. Yeah. Every night it's like, we have to go and find the moon <laughs> in our house. I have a two-year-old and he like, he's obsessed with the moon and the, he, he doesn't know which direction it is. So sometimes if it's cloudy, he'll go and check all of the windows <laughs> any of them. I'm just like, no, no, there's no moon tonight. We can't see it. But um, you're reminding me of, so I'm going to go to history of science land now, but one of the projects that I've been working on um, is a history of women religious who were botany professors or studied botany as graduate students. Mm. Um, and one of them, uh, Sister Roberta Westkemper, who was a Benedictine, um, taught in a little town in Minnesota um, at the College of St. Benedict. And she had this quote, the world doesn't need more wonders, it needs more wonderers. And so she took it upon herself uh, as she was teaching about botany, taking her students on field trips and just teaching them to notice and appreciate God's creation in the natural world. And I just love that quote. I think it's so powerful. It's not I think that there's the temptation within science and life to instrumentalize things and think like the point of learning biology is to, you know, further knowledge or um, go on to the next stage. But a lot of the sisters that I look at, they realize at some point that they're not just training people who are going on to be scientists. They're training young women who are going to be on, go on to be teachers and mothers and do many different things, and appreciation of nature and nature study might enrich their lives, and therefore all of us, if some people have that skill. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's so right. And I think, like you said, I think that's what it associates it so much with childhood, is that everything is a wonder, that like a flower coming up and blooming is a marvel. And it is a marvel to everyone, but it often takes a child to recognize it, you know, that they, they have such a um, greater capacity for wonder than, than we do and that everything is kind of, it's new and needs to be explored and explained, but not explained away. Yeah, and I, I love another one of the Vegan Garoin books, the, the Fragrance of God. He has a, a beautiful quote, which is, in the pearly petals of the star of Bethlehem, the mockingbird's evening song, the pomegranate's sanguine seed, the lilac's perfume scent, the eggplant's silky skin, paradise shows itself to holy senses through sight, sound, taste, smell, and touch. God meets us in the garden, for he never left it, not even after Adam's banishment, and he has invited us back in. I say to you today, you will be with me in paradise, in the gardens that we grow, uh, which is beautiful. I love that. Yeah, that's lovely. I mean, I can, I love lilacs, right? So like, that's my, you walk down the street in, in spring and you can smell the lilac and to go and find it. This morning we were talking about snow and how it sparkles. So Hans was sitting at the breakfast table and he pointed out the window and he said, oh, the snow is sparkling. And we were like, yeah, the snow does sparkle. And then I was trying to 
weird. Uh, then I was, I went on like a little tangent. I was like, oh yeah, but the snow is warm. It keeps the plants warm underground. And he was like, no, snow is cold, mama. Snow is cold. <laughs> and then I was like, but the plants. And he was like, no, we're not talking about plants. <laughs> I was like, oh, okay. But I'm notorious for being the person who is excited when it snows. Mm-hmm. And so often now I'll be in a conversation with people like, oh, it's snowing. Snow is so annoying. And I'm like, but glitter is falling from the sky. It's fantastic. <laughs> what are you talking about? It's definitely a sign that you've gotten older when when snow is not an unmitigated good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I think that's one of those things is like actually taking the time to appreciate the garden and nature as something that can be joyful. You know, like mm-hmm. yes, we have sun every day. <laughs> Sometimes, it, well, I guess in Ireland you don't have sun every day, but you no, know, <laughs> it's not a rare. You know, the sun is there, but it's so lovely to just like have the sun hit your skin and. Rain also can be lovely. Mm-hmm. It has to do with your frame of mind, right? Yeah. Like if and you go into it thinking this is going to be bad, it's no good. But if you like really no- like are in this place and you're noticing it and experiencing it, it can be lovely. It can. And I think that's where we were also saying earlier that like, I think it, it's interesting that's where gardening comes into uh, being a really great metaphor in that it combines, like we were saying about the hard work and the cultivation of virtue and the cultivation of, of plants and, and like the kind of back, the backbreaking labor that it can be, or the kind of tedious everyday work or whatever it is. And that does produce results, but it doesn't guarantee results. And that there's always an element of it being God's gift that like, I can't manufacture a flower to bloom that like I can just put everything in place as best I can, but it is up to God's goodness that such a thing as a rose blooms at the end of it. That like there is this sense of having to put in the work and then also let God take control and deliver in ways that we're not expecting and to create beauty that like it's not actually as much as we like to act in our lives that like we have no say over how warm the sun is and we have no say over um what a plant will do and how it reacts and and that it is a little miracle every time you see another flower come up and I think you really notice it at this time of year especially in Ireland because we have our daffodils coming up and our crocuses coming out and our snowdrops are here that like when you see everything is just grayish and flat and dead and then these little buds start pushing their way through and it is a miracle every time right and it's it's some right there's like both the moral like part where it's like yes if you put in hard work you know and you start small I think that's always right like if you're (laughs) gonna plan the entire garden at once that might not go very well (laughs) but like (laughs) I think that there's that, right, that, like, humility and the, like, I'm going to take it one piece at a time, and this year I'll plant a little bit, and if that goes well, next year I'll expand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, but in the end, it doesn't matter how good of a, I mean, being a better gardener will help, because you know how to, like, help the natural rain, but it doesn't solve everything. Yeah. At any point, there could be a hailstorm or a drought, and 
you don't have control over that. That's God. You can do everything right and still be scratching your head at your puny little plant that refuses to do anything. And you're like, I have no idea what I did, you know? <laughs> that like, yeah, we don't get to feel like, A, like you said, we're subjected to the natural world, that everything is kind of a gift. Um, there's a quote from, this is back to the, the fragrance of God that says, the garden is the ground of my humility. <laughs> I think my mum would definitely <laughs> agree with that. It's definitely something I feel. But the garden is the ground of my humility, as the whole earth should be also. I did not create the butterfly or the spider. I do not possess the beauty of the one or the skill of the other. They, along with the rest of creation, declare a grander design and possess a value that is quite their own and not dependent upon me. And I just think that that's so striking and it reminded me of coming back to like classic children's literature the the secret garden which you mentioned which there's this section at the end where they talk a lot about what they call magic which is like this sort of life-giving renewal that can be experienced when we open ourselves up to to the garden and to nature and don't hold ourselves away and the the cousin colin who hasn't been outside in years suddenly finds himself renewed to be outside. Um, I've got a, another quote. I've got lots of quotes today, but they always called it magic. And indeed, it seemed like in the months that followed, the wonderful months, the radiant months, the amazing ones, all the things that happened in that garden. If you have never had a garden, you cannot understand. And if you have had a garden, you will know that it would take a whole book to describe all that came to pass there. At first, it seemed that green things would never cease pushing their way through the earth, in the grass, in the beds, even in the crevices of the walls. Then the green things began to show buds, and the buds began to unfurl and show colour. Every shade of blue, every shade of purple, every shade, every tint and hue of crimson. In its happy days, flowers had been tucked away into every inch and hole and corner. Ben Weatherstaff had seen it done and had himself scraped out mortar from between the bricks of the walls and made pockets of earth for lovely clinging things to grow on. Iris and white lilies rose out of the grass in sheaves and green alcoves filled themselves with amazing armies of the blue and white flower lances of tall delphiniums or columbines or campanulas. And it's just... Again, like the gardener, Ben Weatherstaff, did make those spaces, did allow for those beauties to come through. And yet it's still so much more. It's like this tumbling over blossoming that like every inch is kind of coming alive in a way that you couldn't carefully manufacture. Right. And it's funny, like we put so much effort into sort of manufacturing these things, right? So I look at like there are all these tables of like, there's a 50% chance that the last frost date will be before this date or after. And then there's a 70% chance it will be before this date. And I, I, in the fall, I was like talking about this in a lecture for students and I had the chart up and I hadn't really looked at it that closely ahead of time. And so I was looking at it and I was like, today is October 25th and we haven't had the last frost yet. And the chances of that are, oh my, <laughs> less than 5%. We should have had a frost a long time ago. <laughs> You just don't have control over that. And I think that there's like a metaphor for life in there. Like I've been thinking about, you know, like I want to do this thing and I want to make it happen. And it seems like it's so stressful and it's so hard. 
What if mm -hmm. I just say, well, I'm not really responsible for this. Like it's all the gifts I have from God and God can make this happen or not make it happen. And, you know, ultimately God is the responsible one. Mm -hmm. <laughs> it feels much easier to do that in the garden, right? Like we already <laughs> have that language. It was an act of God, right? Like I, I think that's so right. And I think it really comes back to you reference Laudato Si, which I really love as a as a document. And I think it answers to so many of people's questions about you know, there's a lot of debate about uh, things like climate change or global warming or, or whatever you want to call it. And I never feel like I have enough information or like the right sources or the wisdom to know what might happen or what will happen or any of those things. But it comes back to that balance that we said, like if you start small, it becomes obvious in the big, which is that um, we don't have control and, and that we have to give it over to God and yet that is at the exact same time coupled with an absolute clarity that it is our hard work and our dedication to do the right thing to begin with that allows for God's grace to flourish. And so there's no, it, like that stewardship, that idea that um, we are given this beautiful task of cultivating and minding this incredible creation that we've been given and that in some ways to me it almost doesn't matter at all whether it would impact the like whether our actions would impact the climate at all in some ways like that's obviously a threat that can be looming over people but at the very same time even if it made no difference it would still be wrong because it is wrong to disregard that any part of God's creation is unimportant and to be trampled on and to be um, polluted or any of those things that we are stewards. And I think there was something that I came across when I was researching for this podcast, which was like the word for gardener in the Bible, not only means to like cultivate or to, to grow, but it actually means to keep watch over. Um, and that there is this, parental and deep, deeply emotionally connected way of looking at our gift of being the stewards of creation that like, it's not just this sort of title that doesn't mean anything. Um, and it calls us to really love creation and, and the gift that God has given us. Right. And I think that goes back to the, um, the being embodied and having a relationship with the natural world. I just think like, Pope Francis says this in Laudato Si, and it comes out of that. Like, part of the reason why we we use so many resources from the earth is we don't have a relationship with them. Mm. We don't know where they come from. We're not actively involved in, you know, gathering the food that we eat and seeing the chemicals or whatever goes into that, or killing the animals that we eat. Yeah. I think that comes up in Haley Stewart's book, The Grace of Enough, where they're like, we didn't eat that much meat because no one wanted to kill the animals that we had to eat. Um, <laughs> and I think that's so, you know, important. And we don't see the garbage either, right? So, like, when it's done, you know, we, we my cheese had mold on it, so I threw it away. It just goes away, right? Yeah. It goes somewhere. It doesn't just disappear. <laughs> But I don't see it anymore. And just being disconnected from the garden and the way things grow. and Yeah. And I think it, it, with our digital age, it's so easy to imagine that everything is just 
digital and that like nothing has a real world impact and e- but even that we never even see the impacts of that like i was reading one thing which was encouraging people to unsubscribe from email lists that you don't actually read because if so many companies sent so many fewer emails it would actually take so much less energy that like you would save on the energy needed to produce the data centers to send those emails and like you just you just think of an email that comes into your phone it's like well i deleted it that literally does just vanish into thin air but it didn't actually take energy and um you know processing space and computing space that exists in the real world to send that email. <laughs> um, and so even the things that we think of as totally disembodied are actually things that are manufactured in the real world, just because nobody sat down with a piece of paper to write uh, 20% sale on all clothes at Marks and Spencer's. Like, <laughs> just because it wasn't written down on paper and given to you doesn't mean that there wasn't actually a real world impact to creating to creating that. And like, I don't want to necessarily get people so freaked out by the idea that everything we do has this like um, impact on creation. Cause I think that can be paralyzing to feel like I can't do anything right, but to, to make sure that we are actually reflecting on the fact that we are beings in creation and that everything that we do comes from God and from the earth and that um, we can't pretend that that doesn't exist. And I think like you you mentioned Haley Stewart's book, that ability to live in the seasons, which actually is really bolstered by our faith, that like the two things go together, that seasons of feasting, seasons of fasting, seasons of eating meat and not eating meat, like all of these things are actually helpful to us to remind ourselves that we are not above the world that we live in. Absolutely. Yeah, I bought her book when I was in New York City. And so I was reading it on the subway. And it was just like this stark contrast, because I don't spend like, that was the first time I'd rather I lived in New York for a month, right. And so I, there's just advertising everywhere. <laughs> and I'm mm-hmm. reading this book about how to like separate yourself, and like, be happy with what you have. Um, and like this moral sense, and it's just like, wow, <laughs> this is such a striking contrast to the way that the world works. Yeah, we're getting Haley's getting a proper shout out. Having been on the podcast the in the last episode, we're now coming back to our first book, The Grace of Enough. But I think that is right. And I think that it's always lovely when we can tie I think I saw something even this morning which was showing how the liturgical season matches the agrarian season and how that's on purpose and that's like actually representative of the way that the church actually um engages with the gift of creation and i i love that like the the vegan gurian books talk a good bit about that about like the assumption sunday and bringing the first fruits of the harvest or whether it's christmas and he has a beautiful thing of saying for christmas that we have tamed christmas and domesticated it we have taken all of the terror and cold out of that night with our electrified lights our real joy escapes us We compensate, we cover over silent despairs with gay Christmas wrapping, but we know all too well at the appointed hour the wrapping will all be torn away and crumpled in piles and our lives will be no different after this day is done. We want the joy of our life without the pain of his birth or the agony of his crucifixion or the judgment when he returns. But I ask you, 
why in this season does the holly bear its red berries? And so just always bringing these things back to the lessons that the plants and the earth and the gift of creation can can tell us. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I went one, one day. I, I mean, right, there are always these discussions about how Christmas is really the pagan solstice. And <laughs> right, so... I went one day and I was like, let me just like go and see all of the holy days of obligation and see if we can figure out what, what, what they are in like the agrarian calendar (laughs) and they match almost one for one, (laughs) right? There's Easter, you know, is spring and Lent is that period before Easter. My mother-in-law likes to say when the peasants didn't have any food anyway, because they've eaten all the food all winter. So they just had to eat soup and, um, the, Assumption was the one right. So I was like, "What? Which is the harvest festival?" And so I was looking at it. And um, in Poland, they call there's like an alternative name for that day, and it's um, or it's the feast of like Mary, oh, mother of herbs, Matka Boja Zielna. Oh wow! So Mary, our mother of herbs. Yeah. Wow, that's amazing. And it, so it coincides with like the first harvest of wheat in Eastern Europe. Lovely. I love that. And like the point there is not to say, oh, these Christian feasts are only just like Christian veneers on something that existed anyway. But again, coming back to Tolkien, it's like, no, it's the fulfillment of those. Like these things existed because God was always showing us these truths through the ways that he that were available to to humanity at those times. But that they come to their fullest understanding and their fullest reality when given their Christian context. Well, and also just how important living with nature and having food and we're connected to people throughout Mm -hmm. time, right? Like you celebrate the harvest because the harvest is immensely important to your survival. Yeah. Celebrate the solstice because and you celebrate Christmas because it's immensely important to your survival that you've made it this far through winter and that the days are going to be getting longer and the sun has come and there's hope again for the future. Yeah, and I was thinking about it is so centrally tied to the Christian message that it's so deeply woven, like you mentioned the biblical references and the fact that it's woven through the mass and how how we understand it to be especially in Easter, like this image of the tree of life and that not only is Christ the gardener, but he is nailed to the tree of life. Like there's so many layers of imagery and wisdom that we can access in helping us to come to understand the sacraments and the uh, the sacraments as that kind of base of it being the most important. Like we used to celebrate the harvest and of course that's important. That's what helps you live through the, through the winter. (laughs) Um, but that we can go beyond that and say the Eucharist is even beyond the first the first fruits of our harvest, that this is something that transcends all of that and, and brings us into contact with the divine. And to come back to the, the Inheriting Paradise book, it says, the word himself was the first gardener. In the beginning, he planted a tree in the Garden of Eden that grew the fruit of immortal life. But the serpent came into the garden and claimed the tree as his own until the word took our flesh and reclaimed it. Nailed to that tree, he made himself the antidote of sin and death. They who nailed the Lord to the cross did not know that it was his from the beginning. 
that the self-same dead instrument of execution was and is forever more a living tree, the tree of life that produces the food and drink of the kingdom of heaven. And that's just so beautiful. And I just love how we can see so many layers of our faith and our our experience of life through these images of the reality of creation. Right. And how interconnected it is. It's not, I think often we're like, it's the one tree, right? Like there's an oak tree outside or I have a maple tree in my yard, but increasingly we can learn from the Bible and from God, like how interconnected these things are. It's not just a tree. It's part of a a larger whole. And then science, you know, can catch up and say like, oh yes, there's the mycorrhizae under the ground and the trees nurse each other. And there's this scientist, Suzanne Simard um, in British Columbia. And all of her research is about how trees communicate with each other. Wow. And how important it is. She uses this term wood wide web of information (laughs) transfer and nutrient transfer and how mother trees are nursing their seedlings and their offspring um, and different species work together. And it, it just, again, like enriches this idea that we have of what creation is. Yeah, that's so fascinating. I love that. And, and that it works its way down all to the like smallest details. I think you have some pulled out, but, and I've referenced this before, but like the ways that we name flowers and how that helps us to, to maintain that sense of connection and perspective and, and Catholic and Christian lens on it, like marigolds being Mary's gold. And I love this, the French called foxglove Gant de Notre Dame, our lady's gloves. Like, what is it? Like, are they on her little fingers? Like, fox <laughs> that's the size of like a fox's paw. But, <laughs> um, or of course the rose and, and all of those beautiful ways or like the, the shrinking violet of like our lady's bowing head that like having this rich tradition really helps that stay in our minds and could actually form a way of even like you said engaging with science like expecting to find and looking for these these profound truths in our nature and looking at the ways that they kind of surprise us like you were saying about the the interconnectedness that's amazing I love it right well and the way that I think I mean this is also like a soapbox, right? But people are like, oh, science is supposed to be unbiased. But that's not possible. Everyone brings their background and what they're going to discover and what they're going to investigate with them from mm. some other outside experience or, you know, the past research they did or whatever. And so I think it's important to, you know, take that in mind. It, it does matter, I think, to be a Catholic scientist or to be a Catholic teacher or to be experienced in nature like to be a naturalist scientist is not something that's presumed either there are plenty of people who study ecological interactions who can't identify the ecological organisms they're studying Mm, yeah that's really that really comes into the Walden thing of like studying it without ever actually seeing it right and that's like you were saying and like and it comes back to interconnectedness like in some ways, that's why it might be a truly better way to approach science, which is to start with your coloring pencils. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's what we do. Yeah, so when I'm teaching nature journaling, it's like, well, the art and the science are not separated from each other. And in mm-hmm. fact, inquiry has multiple ways of 
like there are multiple ways of inquiring about the world. How you answer questions is going to depend on what the question is, right? Mm. So science answers some questions, but it doesn't answer all of the questions, right? The answer of like, why are the flowers beautiful? That, that's yep. not a question you necessarily answer. Or my, my go-to example is, which kind of garden should you plant on this plot of land, right? Mm. You have a plot of land. If you plant food, you can feed people. If you plant a rain garden, you can clean the water. If you plant a rosary garden, you can help people meditate. All of those things are good, and we could use science to measure the good for any of them. But you can't do all three. And science yeah. isn't going to tell you which one of those things to do. That's a moral question of which thing is better or more important at this moment. Yeah. Or, or you know, should you just plant a flower garden and say, I, I'm going to do it because it looks beautiful and, and challenge them to... Uh, to pull the the data set that's that shows the the outcome of good from that, which just because you can't necessarily do that doesn't mean that there's no there's no good in having a flower garden. <laughs> well, actually, so there's a there's data that nature is. I mean, right? So there's data for everything, more or less. <laughs> um, they've done research that nature stimulates your natural curiosity, essentially. So it's really helpful for students to have a window to look out. Um, or to be able to go outside because it takes a lot of mental energy to actually focus on lessons, but mm -hmm. your brain will naturally focus on the natural world or a garden. Your brain is designed to be engaged by the natural world. I just think that's so fascinating about how it just comes so much back to basics of like, oh, of course we should show kids the, the natural world instead of just being in school all day. And that like, again and again, these things seem to eventually be backed up by scientists. Like, I don't know whether you get this experience, but you see headlines of like, scientists discover and what they've discovered is a, a truth known to man until five minutes ago. <laughs> that was probably for most people so obvious that it didn't need a, a scientific survey to, to discover. That's not to say that there's no merit in it. In some ways, like I said, it, it reaffirms it because you say, look, it is actually backed up by science. There's the, me the moral messaging that we can get from our faith. And there's the intuition that we get from being a human. And that we can actually, in many ways, correlate that to data, like you said, and that the it's amazing the things that you would think couldn't be captured by data that are actually rendered. You're able to see their impact and see what what good that they produce. And then it always comes back to, well, then why don't we just go and do that? <laughs> <laughs> right. Well, and the same thing happens, I mean, when people study like the impact of religion, right? Mm. So they'll, they'll go and they'll say, we can see the benefits of meditation, like mm -hmm. the scientific data that praying is beneficial or there's mm -hmm. scientific data that fasting is healthy right mm -hmm. that goes back to like the liturgical seasons right like the historic calendar but basically right after the second vatican council there was sort of a reform and by and large catholics did away with not that they were supposed to but 
giving up meat on Fridays, for example. And now we have meatless Mondays, which I just think is hilarious. I was like, meatless Mondays. Didn't somebody already come up with this? Like, maybe we should (laughs) not eat meat on Fridays. I know. I think there was somewhere in New York where the schools brought in, like, vegan Fridays. And all of the Catholics were like, well, that's kind of a win. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah. The Ember Days is, like, right, every three months approximately. And you fast for three days and they coincide with different feast days and also different celebrations of nature. So I don't have the, there's a cool graphic that I don't have in front of me, but it's like, you know, one of them is the wheat harvest and one is the oil harvest and one is the grape harvest. And they're Mm -hmm. all tied in to the main Italian Mediterranean harvest festival (laughs) that don't really relate to my life in North America. But I think it's just really interesting to think about how the liturgical calendar has been so tied into nature mm. and also tied into what we need <laughs> to function well as humans. Yeah. It's the it's the thing of being rightly ordered and that we see it borne out in science, which looks at, you know, what is the most efficient or effective or what's the most beneficial ways to do things. And it's borne out by this rightly ordered life. And like you were saying about the liturgical season, it is amazing how much we can learn from it. I was mentioning to you before we were recording that I read a couple of years ago, I read Benedict XVI's book, Spirit of the Liturgy, which is a lot about how to conduct the liturgy. But he has this fascinating section, which is talking about the liturgical year, and then specifically puts it in the context of the Southern Hemisphere. And while obviously the things are inverted, like things like we say, like the days are getting shorter after the feast of John the Baptist, like he must, I must decrease so that he can increase. And like, there's this, all this imagery with like the length of days and things like that. But he actually takes the time to show some of the ways that we can also find other truths and other um, perspectives on it when we're looking at the liturgical year from the perspective of the Southern Hemisphere. And I thought that was such a a thoughtful and interesting section to put into that book. Right. Well, and that I think becomes the question, right? Is it this universal religion started in one place and then went around the world? And then, you know, how does it relate to Mm -hmm. the, the experience of people elsewhere? And that it can be truly universal. And of course, there are some things that, like you said, you know, based on the Mediterranean experience, okay, it's not exactly replicable, even in Ireland, let alone in Wisconsin, but that there are still shades and peculiar perspectives that all help in coming to this full understanding of creation. Like I was telling my UK colleagues that in Ireland, the 1st of February is the first day of spring. Whereas I think, you know, a lot of people wouldn't consider it that way. Like spring comes much later. But in Ireland, in some ways, it's more about looking at the very beginning of things and being there for the whole journey of them coming up and like almost anticipating it rather than sort of waiting for it and then saying, okay, it's arrived. All of the all of the things are, are growing now that like you put it at the start where you can say, now's the time to be looking for those things coming up. And now's the time to be looking for those beginnings. And I think that's really beautiful. So in Ireland, we're, we're firmly in spring right now. Right. Well, that's, in, I, I spent some time thinking about that in, before. And it's like, well, if, if spring starts at the 1st of February, then midsummer is when mid, we celebrate midsummer, right? Like, 
the rest of the world right on seasons are like midsummer is really the first day of summer but yeah right the historical feast and then i realized so here we have groundhog day which is and I always forget if it's February 1st or February 2nd, but essentially the groundhog decides if he sees his shadow, there's six more weeks of winter. <laughs> if he doesn't see his shadow, then uh, spring starts. Yeah. And those six weeks are exactly the six weeks between February 1st and March 21st, more or less. Right. So it's exactly that difference between yeah. when <laughs> spring starts. So amazingly, despite all of these differences, a groundhog has united those. <laughs> Humans have created a system where a, a groundhog bridges those two gaps. Yeah, I think that's it. And so, you know, that's that's a peculiarly Irish perspective that we bring to that season. And it is slightly different. And I think it reflects some older traditions, like you said, where midsummer would be the, the middle of it. Like I said, there's almost a sense with a lot of people's calendars now that you're waiting for the climax to say it starts, you know, that whereas we kind of track a little bit earlier, but that like all of these variations bring their own knowledge and wisdom and that like there isn't one set answer to everything in creation because it's so vast and because it has so many elements and because it changes obviously wherever you go but that there are these truths that are borne out no matter what through our faith yeah well i have to say in minnesota starting spring on march 21st uh is similarly anticipatory. We don't really get spray until spring until May first. So, <laughs> which is technically the start of summer for us. <laughs> yeah. So, it works. Yeah. We just have to modify it for the climate. Absolutely, but yeah, I think that's wonderful. So, I think that kind of covers over a lot of what we were wanting to discuss. Is there anything else you wanted to bring up? I don't think so. Not particularly. I'm sure I'll think of something later, but. <laughs> uh, but no, wonderful. And thank you so much. I know this is this episode has kind of been long coming. Reba reached out to me a good while ago. And as as the seasons slip by through my fingers, um, it is it is finally coming to fr fruition now. But I'm so I'm really grateful to have you on and to ha bring your your perspective and your particular areas of expertise to, to talk about this subject. So before we go, I have to ask, what are you enjoying at the moment? All right. Well, I'm enjoying a toddler, which is just an ever there's challenges and joys, but he has such a good um way of experiencing the world you can just be patient enough to go along with him um but what i was actually going to say is um i recently read a book or listened to it really called joyful by ingrid fetal lee and it's all about finding like the importance of joy and how mm -hmm. there's just this like mo the modern world and i fall into this trap all the time of like it's not important to be joyful that's like you know, like having balloons or sparkles or sprinkles, they're just like, that's superfluous. Yeah. And I think, it, again, it goes back to like the liturgical seasons too of actually celebrating things and having a Christmas tree or, you know, putting up decorations for Easter is important. And that's how we have survived <laughs> for millennia. And I mean, if God thought it was important to have flowers... Exactly. Right. Well, that's what, she, yeah. And she says that too, right? Like the importance, like flowers are beautiful. Like it's not a moral slight to want to go and buy flowers for yourself. <laughs> that's a good thing. And so that's, yeah. I mean, toddlers are perfect at that, right? They, they know sprinkles are so exciting and 
every little mm -hmm. thing and stopping to smell the flowers. I loved it. I'm going to say I found, I, I went to some charity shops recently and I came across a vinyl of the Mary Poppins soundtrack and Mary Poppins, I don't know. I feel like it's quite a spring film story. I don't know whether that's just because it takes place on Cherry Tree Lane. Like I don't, I can't actually remember whether it takes place during spring, but anyway, it feels quite seasonally appropriate and it's lovely listening to the the, the lovely long soundtrack and coming from a, a charity shop it's in like slightly more worn condition but it has that lovely crackle to it and it's it's very nice so that's what I'm enjoying at the moment so that's it thank you so much for listening and as always you can reach out to us you can subscribe to our newsletter which is on my website rachelsherlock.com forward slash podcast um, or you know follow us on Instagram or on Twitter um, the handle is at risking enchantment podcast on Instagram uh, I'm just on Twitter at seeking Watson um, and I hope I think this should be coming out at the start of Lent. So I, I wish all of our listeners all the best for their, their Lenten preparations. And I hope you're also enjoying the seasons and getting out and seeing seeing what God has to offer in creation at this this time of year and at every time of year. So thanks again for listening. Goodbye. Hello, Rachel here. Just before uh, I'm about to post this episode, I just wanted to jump on and say that I have had some travel plans come up kind of unexpectedly. And so just to give a heads up, the next episode of the podcast, which is being prepared as we speak, but it will be a week late. Uh, so it'll come out. I think it'll just miss March. It'll be the first day or two of April, but then we'll be two weeks again after that. Just wanted to give people a heads up. And so you don't wonder where I've gone. I hope you've enjoyed this episode and I'll be speaking to you soon. Goodbye. This has been Risking Enchantment. Music by Kevin MacLeod. You can follow me on Instagram and Twitter with the handle at SeekingWatson. And you can find out more about me and the podcast at rachelsherlock.com. Thank you and God bless.